Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get started on this week's podcast, a really exciting announcement Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to pre-order on our website. That's right, pre-order the book. It'll be out in September, but get your hands on a copy early because anyone who pre-orders the book will also receive an exclusive behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart that includes wonderful audio from Gallipoli veterans telling their story in their own words. It's absolutely extraordinary. In many ways, it's even more exciting than the book, but the book's pretty good too. So get your hands on the book, pre-order it now on our website, and get that exclusive interview that you can download straight away, and then you'll get the book when it comes out in September. So Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation, now available on the Living History website, which is livinghistorytv.com. That website again, livinghistorytv.com. Get your hands on the book. It's going to be something really special. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Welcome to Living History. You join us at a very important time. Uh, in world history because this week marks the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Japan that ended the Second World War. And ever since those bombs fell, it's been a relatively controversial subject. People have debated over decades the reasoning behind dropping the bombs, whether it was necessary, etc. And so I really wanted to dig into this story and, and, and talk about the elements that led to the atomic bombs being dropped on Japan. And to do that, I'm joined by one of the great experts, on the Pacific War, someone I always enjoy talking to. It's Richard B. Frank. Rich, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Now, the atomic bombing of Japan, I mean, it's probably one of the most controversial chapters of modern history. And opinions have swung backwards and forwards over the decades about the reasoning behind it and whether it was necessary. Can you? Can we start with you just sharing the big picture of what was happening in 1945 and the, the reasoning behind the uh, the atomic bombings? Yes. And, you know, I've spent uh, literally decades with this issue and uh, I've evolved my opinion somewhat. But uh, the basic points I would make would be that if you really want to understand and judge what happened in 1945, you need to, first of all, count all the dead. And second, to treat all the dead as sharing a common humanity. And to do that, you need to understand that this conflict was really something I would call the Asia-Pacific War rather than just the Pacific War. And this is not merely a little word change. This really is a very fundamental conceptual change to how we look at it. The Asia-Pacific War is a war that really began effectively in July 1937. 
when China mounted armed resistance to Japan's aggression. That war would explode outward from China. It would go west to India, south to Indonesia and Australia, east to the Hawaiian Islands, north to the Aleutian Islands in the northeast corner of Asia. And in 1937, and, and literally to today, in that swath of the globe, uh, then there was uh, over a billion people who lived there of the 2.3 billion people who were alive at that time, which is basically about half the population of the world. Um, and when Japan reached the pinnacle of its uh, conquests, uh, Japan had under its control about 516 million people, which is about 20% of the whole world population. So this war is a lot bigger than what we commonly think of when we approach this about the U.S. and Japan, or the U.S. and Australia and Japan, or U.S. allies uh, versus Japan. And the biggest difference, uh, I should say that the Pacific War is the war that began in December 1941 when Japan attacks the U.S. and her allies. And this comes more than halfway through this Asia-Pacific War, which ran for eight years to August 1945. And so the Pacific War is really only a subpart of the Asia-Pacific War. And the fundamental difference between the Asia-Pacific War and the Pacific War can be expressed in two words. And the words are the dead. Uh, by a conservative count, Japan's war resulted in the deaths of about 25 million human beings. And of that 25 million, only about 6 million were combatants, soldiers, sailors, and airmen. About five or six of those were Chinese and Japanese. And that means there are 19 million non-combatant deaths. When you look at how many Japanese non-combatants died, and using a very generous definition of Japanese non-combatants and very generous uh, use of the projections, I can't get Japanese non-combatant deaths above about a million to 1.2 million. And that math tells you right away the astonishing fact that for every Japanese non-combatant who died in the Asia-Pacific War, 17 or 18 other non-combatants died. About 12 of them were Chinese. And by the summer of 1945, most of those 17 or 18 million non-combatants who were not Japanese were already dead. And they were dying at a rate, depending on your projection, between 8,000 and 14,000 a day which is like 240,000 to 400,000 a month. So that the scale of this is one of the most titanic tragedies in, in world history. I mean, it's right up there with the European phase of the war. So that's, that's basically what we're talking about. We're not talking about a, a really a, this small issue. This is really connected to a huge issue of one of the biggest tragedies in world history. Why don't we know more about that, Rich? Because obviously we focus a lot on the, the Holocaust with the European war. Why don't we know about the, why don't more people talk about the huge number of civilians that were dying under Japanese occupation? Well, it's, it's an issue that, uh, interestingly, I've, I've studied a lot of uh, American attitudes during the Second World War. And I've read uh, the New York Times day by day through the war. And at that time, the American people had a, a very good appreciation of the fact that there was not only a war in Europe, there was a war in Asia and the Pacific. And in fact, one of my colleagues, uh, Tom Doherty of, of Brandeis University, who's been through all the newsreels, which were effectively like the television of that time for Americans in terms of your visual library about world events. And one of the things Tom pointed out is that if the average American was seeing uh, two newsreels a week, which was typical, uh, the, the graphic nature of the slaughter that Japan was committing in Asia was much, much clearer than what was happening in Europe. And, and in the Pacific, you had a lot of visual imagery of what I call hand killing. I mean, up close and personal, uh, shooting somebody through the head. Whereas in Europe, it was mostly this distant, you know, the artillery going off, bombs going off, 
destruction, but not a whole lot of bodies. And, and that uh, was known. And then we went into the post-war period and that all has sort of been uh, moved out of the picture and people no longer recognize it the way they once did. And I, that's one of the things I'm working on now in my trilogy is I'm trying to restore this notion of how horrific the Asia Pacific War was and particularly for civilians. In 2005, for the 60th anniversary of the uh, of the atomic bombings, you wrote a really compelling article called "Why Truman Dropped the Bomb," and it's it's available on the web. and I suggest people go and, and read that article because it's a it's a fantastic, just a summary of fact based evidence about why those bombings occurred, and it talks about a really interesting debate between the traditional views of the atomic bombing and the revisionist or the the, the critics' view of the atomic bombing. I mean, I suppose the first question is, this was 15 years ago. Um, is it still valid? Is it still relevant, the, the conclusions you drew in that article? Oh, oh very much so. Uh, and in fact, some additional evidence uh, uh, I hope to see published shortly, not by me, but by another historian, I think is going to further further, further, uh, further cement sort of the, the viewpoint I had. Uh, let me just talk briefly about uh, understanding w- what was going on then. When the, when the Japanese leadership looked around in the beginning of 1945, they knew that their military situation was extremely dire. But surrender was an anathema to them. And they believed uh, quite strongly that they could see a path uh, by which they could secure an end of the war that they could abide. And this was based on the principle that they believed while the Americans had great material power, American morale was very brittle and could be broken. And so the Japanese leadership can conceive this two-phase sequential strategy. They called it Ketsugo, Operation Decisive. And what this strategy did in the first part was it was entirely military because the Japanese believed, I think correctly, that if they couldn't fundamentally change the military balance, they couldn't secure an end of the war they could abide. And that Military strategy was based on the notion that the impatient Americans would come and invade, and they easily and correctly and uh, chillingly identified exactly where that invasion was going to be. And they made a huge buildup of their forces on southern Kyushu, which is where we were targeting. And they believed firmly, and with good reason, I think, that had we attempted that invasion, they would have either defeated it or inflicted such horrific casualties that they would have gained negotiating room. So the, the The other part about this you have to understand is that the Japanese leadership is wholly committed to this military strategy. There is no political or diplomatic part of this strategy until after the big battle in November, which is why they never agree on any terms in the war, because they believe that they will look around after that battle, and then they'll talk about terms. And the leaders of the the Japanese government, which is an inner cabinet called the Big Six, they confessed that the only time they attempted to even talk about how, what they would accept for terms, they, the conversation stopped immediately because the war minister, a fellow named Inami, announced he'd only talk about terms uh, if Japan was not defeated. And the Big Six was further paralyzed by the fact that they could only act when all six of them agreed. Six zero was the only acceptable vote, and five of the votes were with the military. So you're, you're dealing here with an incredibly difficult situation to get Japan to surrender. And I've talked about this as if you really understand what's going on, it's it's almost a miraculous deliverance that we got to a surrender of Japan uh, when we did in August 1945. And actually, most people living at that time saw it as this sort of miraculous deliverance. 
So just to summarise, because it's a complicated situation, but basically the the position as you see it uh, from the evidence is that the Japanese had no intention of surrendering before the atomic bombs and were well-placed to launch, uh, to to defend very strongly the planned Allied invasion of Kyushu. Yeah. Well, we, the one uh, big thing that the Japanese did not realise, uh, an advantage that was held by the US and our allies, including the Australians, were helping us on this, was radio intelligence. And what happened was that after the invasion plan was uh, sanctioned with, with considerable reservation by Truman in, in June 1945, Radio intelligence revealed this stupendous Japanese buildup on Kyushu. And uh, essentially, the raw numbers are that our assault forces would actually number about 380,000 troops. And when we originally planned the operation, we thought we were going to go in and we're only going to encounter very slender Japanese forces. Uh, we outnumbered them well, well better than four to one. Well, as the radio intelligence rolls in, it becomes clear that there's this stupendous Japanese buildup. And our 380 assault troops are now going to be facing what, what in reality was going to be between 700 and 900,000 Japanese, 10,000 aircraft, half of which were kamikazes. And what was concealed for five decades was that because the radio intelligence was, was secret, documents relating to it were secret. And what we now know is that really literally in the last days of what proved to be the war, uh, the U.S. Navy was uh, starting a, a, a revolt against any invasion of Japan because it looked so absolutely horrific. Now, the alternative strategy the Navy was advocating was a blockade of Japan, which was aimed quite bluntly to force Japan to surrender by starving to death millions of Japanese, mostly non-combatants. And we also had from the radio intelligence, this was being presented to Mr. Truman and his uh, government, his members of his, the top members of his government. And it was not only the military, but also the diplomatic communications. And there's a very telling uh, document in that, in those summaries, on the 27th of July, where there's this analysis piece that says, well, we've looked at all the, all the diplomatic messages and all the military messages, and it's quite clear the Japanese are nowhere close to surrender, and that they've made this huge buildup on Kyushu to meet the invasion, and they're absolutely committed to it, and there's no way they're going to be dissuaded from, from talked out of the war. Uh, until that invasion takes place. And so that, that's what Truman had in front of him. And one of the ironies about this is that Truman and his administration forfeited their best evidence because of the secrecy of radio intelligence. We never would have, the debate I don't think would have ever gotten to where it is today had all that information been originally available. So when you say radio intelligence, you mean via code breaking and intercepts, we are reading the Japanese mail effectively. We are able to read their secret transmissions and know exactly what they are thinking. Right. It's code breaking is a critical part of it. There's also a lot of uh, direction finding, uh, locating uh, Japanese tr- transmissions, radios, which helps you identify units. I mean, it is, it's a little bit broader than code breaking, but the, but, the, but the real meat of it is the code breaking, which is really giving you the substance of a lot of stuff. And we were intercepting the diplomatic communications. And the point I would emphasize here is that uh, the, uh, the only Japanese diplomatic initiative that actually was supported officially in Japan, was an effort to enlist the Soviet Union as a mediator to negotiate an end of the war. And that effort ran through the Japanese ambassador in Moscow. Now, there were various Japanese officials, I call them peace entrepreneurs, who presented themselves in Western Europe as though they were representing the Japanese government. But from code breaking, we knew that not a single one of those individuals in Western Europe actually was acting with the authority of the Japanese government. So all the uh, 
ink that's been shed about these people, and supposedly this shows how close the Japanese are to surrender, both we know now, and more importantly, Truman knew then, there was no validity to that at the time. And when you turn to the Japanese ambassador in Moscow, who's running this sole diplomatic effort that's sanctioned, his name is uh, Sato, and uh, as an attorney, I'll tell you, when I read the back-to-back, back and forth of his cables to the foreign minister, who is the person he's contacting in Tokyo, Sato strikes me as he's almost like the prosecuting attorney for the for the Truman administration. He is ripping from one end to the other the, the, the flecklessness, the folly, the pathos of the Japanese effort, because as he points out, to get the Soviets aboard as mediators, you've got to make concessions. Tokyo won't give him any realistic concessions. When, when Togo sends him a message about, well, this is what we want you to say to get the Soviets aboard, Sato writes back and says, quote, these are pretty little phrases without any connection to reality, unquote. <laughs> and, and then Sato turns around and says, look, if this is a serious effort to end the war, Japan must give a statement of what terms it wants to end the war on. And of course, Togo can't give him terms because the government, the emperor, no one has identified terms to end the war. So we're reading, we're reading Sato's, to me, that was one of the things I tried to do in the book. I, I gave the reader an opportunity to look over the shoulder of Truman as he's reading these exchanges. What would you think if you're reading these things? And when, when Sato says, give me terms, and Togo says, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, he says, as, as Sato says, the best you can hope for is unconditional surrender modified to the extent that we keep the imperial institution. And Togo absolutely rejects that in flat, blunt language. The people who are preparing the summaries on this understand this is an extremely important exchange and highlight exactly what is going on between Sato and Togo on this. And, and Togo won't even say that a guarantee of the imperial institution would be helpful. And you, you don't even get the sense at that point and you correctly don't get the sense that there are any terms that Japan would accept in the war before Hiroshima. I think it's really interesting, Rich, that the the radio intelligence known as Ultra, um, it's so important because all of these debates backwards and forwards hinge on the concept of what was Japan thinking. And that's that's what it always comes down to. People always say, well, I just feel that the Japanese knew their situation was hopeless, so they were going to surrender anyway, and then we didn't have to drop the bombs. And, and it swings backwards and forwards, but it's always hinged on this idea that we can somehow interpret what the Japanese are thinking. But basically, this exposure of this evidence about Ultra, about what the radio intelligence was telling us, is we knew exactly what the Japanese were thinking. There was no doubt what the Japanese plans were. Is that, is that a correct assessment? Yeah, and now that sort of one of the supreme ironies uh, uh, about the whole... Uh, the evidence or records from this period is right after the surrender and before the occupation took effect, we know the Japanese destroyed a lot of records uh, because we had promised there was going to be war crimes trials and that was related to it. And if there were, if there had been evidence that the Japanese government was, was about to surrender, you would certainly think that that would have been saved, right? Well, Absolutely. No, nothing, like that, nothing like that showed up. And in, in, in fact, to a large extent, a lot of the most authentic evidence about what the Japanese were thinking at that time was in their own communications that were being intercepted and decoded. And that's, that's basically the gold standard on how you tell, tell what the Japanese are doing and what the Japanese are thinking. I mean, you had, and I, I want to touch on one other thing about just how horrific the Japanese intended this uh, invasion battle to be. In March of 1945, the Japanese government 
in addition to approximately 5 million men who were then under arms in the Imperial Army and Imperial Navy, Japanese government announced that every Japanese male aged 15 to 60, every Japanese female aged 17 to 40 was now a combatant, a member of a national militia. I mean, I've estimated that this is like 18 or 20 million Japanese who now have become combatants of a population of about 72 million. And the Japanese can provide them with uniforms and no distinctive marking. So effectively what the Japanese government did in March 1945 is they obliterated distinctions between combatants and non-combatants. So when we talk about death tolls from the atomic bombs, you're talking easily 25 or 30% of the deaths were people that the Japanese government said were combatants, who otherwise we'd have thought of civilians. It's just, it's absolutely horrific. Anytime you look at the, the situation that was going on in Japan and in occupied Asia uh, under that authoritarian Japanese rule, it, it, it's just absolutely horrific. Just break it down for us. So we've got this situation where the Allies are planning an invasion of Kyushu for late 1945. They can't even agree whether it's a good idea or not. The Navy, as you said, was strongly opposed to it. So there's no guarantee that that operation is even going to go ahead. At the same time, they're reading the Japanese mail. They're interpreting Japanese signals, which say the Japanese have correctly guessed that this attack is coming and are building up huge forces, including those civilian forces, to to repel the Allied invasion. Um, the Japanese have no intention of surrendering. Their plan is to maintain this, you know, to, to fight this huge battle to break the American will to continue the war. And it was the atomic bombs that eventually put an end to all of that. How did these theories form that it was somehow the Americans dropped the bombs to somehow demonstrate to Russia what they could do and, you know, all these counter theories? How did these form given that uh, the, the, that situation as we see it now? Well, I, I think part of it was an immediate reaction as the Cold War developed, that maybe there were some other uh, motives involved. Uh, and, and once again, I would emphasize, you know, had had uh, had all that information that Truman was actually looking at in 1945 been available, uh, I think immediately people would have certainly, I think the notion that the Japanese were on the cusp of surrender uh, would have been uh, dead before it really got going, which, of course, is a, a key part of the whole argument that, well, we knew the Japanese were about to surrender. Therefore, we must have had an ulterior motive to drop the bomb. You know, or bombs, and you uh, and which re- reminds me of something else I wanted to mention. Uh, when the Hiroshima bomb, uh, when when Truman announces it's an atomic bomb that hit Hiroshima, it's extremely instructive what the reaction of the Japanese leadership is. The Japanese had their own atomic bomb program. It didn't give them an atomic bomb, but it educated the top levels of the leadership about how incredibly difficult it was to make fissionable material, which is what makes an atomic bomb an atomic bomb. So when the news comes that Truman says it's an atomic bomb, the Imperial Army's reaction is, well, we're not going to accept that's true until there's an investigation. The Imperial Navy is much more ominous. They said, well, maybe they have a atomic bomb, but they can't have that many of them, and they can't be that powerful, or maybe they'll be dissuaded from using this by international pressure. So this gets to another a very fraught issue, which is, okay, Hiroshima, why then Nagasaki? Well, the basic and bottom line is we had to convince the Japanese not that we had a atomic bomb, but that we had an arsenal of powerful atomic bombs. And that's what the Nagasaki bomb did. In fact, the war minister, Anami, who I mentioned earlier, who was really 
next to the emperor, the most powerful man in Japan, uh, he'd been very adamant about continuing the war, and he had been right through the news of Hiroshima. And then uh, when he gets this prisoner of war interrogation, this guy has to invent stories because they tell him they're going to kill him if he doesn't tell him all about the atomic bomb. He starts running around telling other members of the government that, well, the Americans have 100 atomic bombs, and the next target is going to be Tokyo. Well, that's a hell of an argument for continuing the war at that point, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, I mean, the thing that I always see about this, Rich, when I read the, the when I read the accounts of it, is that the Japanese had, as you say, they had no intention of surrendering even after the atomic bombings. Um, you know, the, the Japanese were determined to carry on this war at all costs, and you know, in spite of the, the huge number of civilians that were going to be killed. So it always strikes me as just fascinating, this idea that the Japanese were on the cusp of surrender before the bombs were even dropped, when we know that even after the bombs were dropped, they still, you know, they, the, the military leaders were still pushing to continue the war. Yeah, well, that ties to a larger issue, which is really, as I've talked about in, in various uh, forums, uh, what you have to understand is that to, to end the war, uh, it really took two steps. And this was well-recognized on the American side, is first of all, we'd had to get a Japanese government that would agree uh, that Japan as a nation state would surrender. And the problem there, as the Joint Chiefs pointed out in April, uh, specifically was that no Japanese government had ever surrendered in Japanese history, which by Japanese count was 2,600 years. And the other problem was that there was no record of any Japanese unit surrendering. And therefore, we weren't sure we could get a government to surrender or the armed forces to comply. And on the Japanese side, up to and including the emperor, very well knew and understood that even his intervention and his order for surrender, which the legal government would comply with, could not guarantee that all of the Japan's armed forces would, in fact, surrender. And when the first announcement is made that the emperor has made this decision, uh, there at the top levels of the imperial army, uh, the, the, basically the number two guy, he's keeping a daily diary. And he says, another senior general came to him and says, I don't think the overseas commanders will comply even with the emperor's order. And this general named Kawabi writes in his diary, well, I agree, I don't think they will either. And right on cue, two of the three senior overseas commanders, the one in China and the one in basically Southeast Asia, uh, sent a signal to Tokyo saying, hell no, we're not going to comply with the surrender even from the, even from the emperor. So it was touch and go. And uh, the Navy minister, Yone, uh, later tells the interrogator, he says, the most anxious time I had uh, of all was for about five or uh, four or five days after the emperor's initial decision when I wasn't sure whether we were actually going to get a surrender on, from the Japanese side. It's absolutely incredible. And we can't overstate the importance of the emperor getting personally involved, can we? Because he's, he's often seen, uh, you know, as in spite of the Japanese um, you know, love for him, uh, sometimes he's uh, portrayed as a bit of a puppet who didn't really have too much going on. But uh, the, the the emperor getting personally involved was was absolutely pivotal in this whole process, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But his role is really it's it, it doesn't really match up well to any sort of Western uh, ideas about how governments are formed. He was both the supreme leader; he was a god. Uh, but the Japanese had also taken great care uh, in the Meiji uh, Constitution to basically insulate him from direct responsibility for policy, to maintain his aura of infallibility. And he became emperor in 1925. And prior to 1945, he'd only actually directly intervened on one occasion in 1936 when there was this mutiny in Tokyo that he uh, he actively became involved in quelling that. He had not directly intervened in any other thing in his whole reign uh, 
until that moment. And I think, uh, and certainly I think some of the historians now I know agree, that really what drove, drove him above all, the bomb, the bomb helped trigger him, but what he was really worried about and other members of the leadership were worried about was that they were concerned the Japanese people were heading towards a revolutionary state by the fall. Because primarily because of the effects of the blockade and bombardment of, of Japan and the increasingly dire situation with food. And that may have been the ultimate motivator of the emperor, that it was the bombs were sort of a handy, handy reason or excuse. But the real reason was, and the one they above all didn't want to admit, uh, is that they were afraid the Japanese people were going to revolt. So just to sum all this up, Rich, give us your <laughs> couple of sentence statements <laughs> that sums up the realistic picture of why Truman made that decision to drop the atomic bombs in August 1945? Well, quite simply stated, Truman, when Truman became president, he announced that his basic uh, duty as president was to execute the legacies of Franklin Roosevelt. And the atomic bomb program had been initiated and pushed by Roosevelt, and absolutely no one told him that Mr. Roosevelt would have done anything else but use the bombs when they became available. No one told him or suggested that that was the case at the time. And to him, the notion that these advisors who were FDR's advisors in no way suggested that FDR would not have used the bomb basically was the, was the pole star he was guiding by. On top of that, he was you know, profoundly concerned after he becomes president, the Okinawa campaign goes on and it is a very costly campaign. And as he says in this one meeting, he says, I'm afraid we're going to face an Okinawa from one end to the Japan to the other. And he tells Churchill that, you know, he has you know, basically the most nightmarish situation he's, he's facing is the fears about this endless effusion of American blood, as Churchill puts it, in the war. So those were the, those were the pole stars that policy was from FDR. And the reality was that it looked like he was going to be facing American forces are going to be facing a bloodbath to end the war with Japan. Well, Rich, it's just such a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for um, sharing it, sharing your views with us. I mean, you've done some wonderful work on this from your book about Guadalcanal, which I absolutely love, which was one of the one of the main reasons that I went to Guadalcanal in the first place. Um, downfall, the end of the Imperial Japanese Empire, which talks all about these elements. Your biography, MacArthur, was outstanding. And now tell us about the new book, Tower of Skulls, which uh, the first in your trilogy that you're currently working on. Right. Well, uh, basically, this is really connected back to the downfall book about the end of the war. When I originally conceived the downfall book about the end of the war, events in 1945, I had a notion of three set pieces, that uh, the fire raid on Tokyo, which I opened the book with, uh, Hiroshima, which I have a very graphic description of that. But I also wanted to have a very graphic description of what it was like, mostly for Asians living in Japan's empire. And when I did that, I couldn't find much material. And this trilogy about the Asian Pacific War is really to go back and to put this whole, well, the events of 1944 in the context of what had gone on for eight years before, and most especially this horrific death toll among non-combatants, Asian non-combatants who were not Japanese. And that's sort of the long, long-range arc of where this trilogy is going. This first volume covers from uh, July of 37 to May of 42. And I call it Tower of Skulls because of a quote from a, a, a Indian poet who's, who's communicating with a Japanese poet. When the Japanese poet tries to justify what's going on in, in China, the Indian poet writes back, whatever you think you're trying to accomplish, all you're really doing is creating a Tower of Skulls. 
Well, I'd certainly suggest that uh, if people have an interest in the Asia-Pacific War, they uh, they check out all of your great books, but particularly the first in the trilogy, Tower of Skulls, because uh, I've, I've read it. It's absolutely fantastic, and I'm looking forward to the uh, the next two coming out. When are we going to see the second and third volumes released? Uh, well, I, I kind of had a plan for that, but this whole uh, problem with the uh, COVID virus and the closing of uh, archives and, and also your ability to fly around or whatever here has thrown a monkey wrench in this. I hope to be able to get it out within three years of the date of the publication of the, um, of the, of the first volume. And I've already accumulated an awful lot of material and I'm, I'm pretty well through 1942. This next volume is going to cover from May of 42 to August of 44. I'm pretty well through 42. Uh, but the, the Aussies shine in 42. <laughs> so I hope, I hope some of your listeners will be glad to hear that. Uh, but we'll see what we can do. I can't, I, at this point, I can't make a promise because I don't know what I have to still have to do in terms of research when I can get out and do it. Well, uh, well, good luck with the, uh, the, the work you're doing. It's absolutely astonishing the work that you do on the Pacific war. And, um, I, I'd recommend to everyone listening to go out and check out Richard's, uh, Richard's absolutely fantastic work. So look out for Richard B. Frank and, uh, and his books and his articles. It's always, uh, it's always great to uh, hear his views on the Pacific War. Rich, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's always a pleasure to catch up, and uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts in this important week. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me, Matt. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.